I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is best-selling author and questionologist Warren Berger, author of Book of Beautiful Questions, the powerful questions that will help you decide, create, connect, and lead. In a time when critical thinking is in crisis and we're swamped with unreliable information, thoughtful questioning can help us make better judgments and decisions. And in this era of polarization, knowing how to ask the right questions enables us to bridge the divide and better connect with others. Warren Berger has studied hundreds of leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and creative thinkers to learn how they ask questions, generate original ideas, and solve problems. Book of Beautiful Questions features more than 400 questions, anecdotes, and case studies designed specifically to help in the four critical areas of decision-making, creativity, leadership, and relationships. And Warren Berger is featured in Fast Company, Harvard Business Review, and the New York Times. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Catherine. It's great to be here. Great to have you here. Uh, I just want to read a short a uh, quote from Daniel Pink. He says, the book of beautiful questions is a veritable goldmine. Berger's insights are so potent and his advice so practical that only one question remains. What's stopping you from picking up this extraordinary book? So that's a great... <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> that's a great question, right? So that's, yeah, that's, that's a beautiful question. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. A beautiful question. Yeah. And that's what a beautiful... Why, I'm just curious why you use the word beautiful question. Well, you know, it, it came about, um, th- that title sort of evolved. Um, originally, I was thinking in terms of, this is going to sound funny, but I was thinking in terms of stupid questions because I had interviewed all of these um, very creative thinkers and uh, innovators, and there was uh, one in particular who was a really great designer and innovator, and he said to me that, you know, the world would be better off if people were willing to ask stupid questions. Um, he said, you know, no one is ever willing to step back and say, hey, why are we doing this thing we're doing? And what are we really trying to achieve here? And he said, a lot of times when you ask those questions, people say, oh, that's, come on, that's a stupid question. That's a naive question. So originally I was thinking in terms of maybe I should write a book about the importance of being willing to ask, you know, stupid questions. Uh, and then I decided that I, I came upon a, a, a quote um, from a poem by E.E. E. Cummings, and the line in the poem is, always the beautiful answer who asks a more beautiful question. And I loved that line. I loved the idea of a beautiful question. Uh, and then I started to really um, focus on that concept. You know, what would make something a beautiful question? Uh, and I, I kind of came up with my own definition of that. I think everyone might have a different idea of what's a beautiful question, but I thought of a beautiful question as something that's really, when you're willing to ask a question that's kind of ambitious and that challenges maybe the way you usually think uh, and that opens things up for, for change and new possibilities. If, if you're willing to ask a question like that, I think it's really beautiful. Yeah. That's that's a great answer, and obviously I think it's really important, particularly now, obviously, and I, I just mentioned that in the beginning, but uh, when I was doing the introduction for you, but we really need to be asking these beautiful questions given the context of the behavior and everything that's happening right now, right? We have this huge divide in our country. So, yeah, book, yeah I, I mean, the, I, foot, yeah, go ahead. I, well, I was just going to say, I think, I think what we're in a period now where people are acting on emotion a lot, and they are 
they're forming very strong opinions and they're they're issuing um, you know statements you know <laughs> very strong opinionated statements about other people or about the way things should be and um, and so I think what happens is you know when everybody is is kind of uh, making statements, um, the statements just kind of butt up against each other, and they don't get anywhere. Um, and if we are willing to ask more questions, that is a great way to um, invite other people into a conversation with you. You know, questions are a wonderful way to to signal that you're interested in the other person. You're 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 interested in their views. Um, you're curious. Uh, and you're open, you know, you're open to what they have to say. So I think this is why questioning, when you, when you talk about interpersonal uh, relationships, um, it's so important because it's just a great way to build uh, rapport with somebody else. How do we get people to stop and not get into this back and forth thing like you just described of sort of emotional kinds of, of rhetoric? And yeah. before they do that, like to stop and ask the beautiful question. First, I mean, you have to be able to, to just step back and be able to do that. There has to be some kind of a process to get to the yeah. point to ask that well, question. Well, I think, I think what it is is, you know, really, what, what, as I study questioning, um, it's about habit. First of all, it's about each of us recognizing that this is an important thing, okay, um, that there's a real value in being willing to stop and uh, ask questions. And when I talk about asking questions, I'm talking about asking questions both of yourself and then of other people. But it, it almost starts with yourself. You know, it starts with asking yourself questions. So that's a habit. That, that's, that's kind of a a way of life. And, you know, the only thing I can say about it is that there's no magic formula to, that will turn you from a non-questioner to, a, to more of a questioner overnight. It's more like you have to first accept that you want to be that way, that, that that's the way you want to conduct yourself, and then you just have to, have to do it. <laughs> and because we all know how to ask questions. It's like we've been doing it, we were doing it when we were small children. We just kind of got out of the habit of it over time. So, um, so I think it's, it's, it's more about, you know, uh, getting yourself back into that habit, saying I'm going to, I'm going to try to stop. And uh, when I encounter new information, when I meet a new person, I'm going to try to slow down, uh, ask questions of myself, ask questions of the other person. And, you know, a lot of the questions you're asking of yourself are pretty basic things like, you know, why do I believe the things I believe? You know, just every once in a while, making sure you check yourself um, and, and understand why you're, you feel so strongly about something you feel strongly about. You know, just ask yourself and, you know, make sure you're, you have, there's a good rationale behind it. So, in other words, question yourself first. Be able to take a look at yourself and evaluate where you're coming from. And then you're going to ask yeah. better questions when you confronted with or engaging with somebody else perhaps who you know you don't feel the same way about things uh from the book give us let's talk about some of the case examples or the, the and some of the four i mentioned i guess 400 questions that you've uh, yeah. featured uh so we can talk specifically about some of those in in relationship to to what you just said yeah, well, um, I mean, I think, I think there's, uh, you know, there's, there's so many questions in the book that are interesting, but, you know, if, if you look at different categories, you know, I found that people a lot of times when they're having to make a decision, 
they, they get sort of stuck and they have trouble making a decision. And there are interesting questions that can help you, um, you know, that can help you make a better decision. You know, one, one thing, it's, it's, it's very simple, but you, you, you think about, um, for instance, if, if you're trying to decide, um, uh, you know, whether, whether to believe some information coming at you, um, one of the most basic questions you ask is, What's the evidence behind this, and how strong is the evidence? So whenever you encounter a news, a news story or uh, some type of a claim, you should always be asking that question, you know. And another interesting question is to always ask yourself about the opposite. You know, if I, if I tend to believe something or if someone is claiming something, what's the opposite side of that? What would be the opposite point of view? What would be the opposite way of thinking uh, about this? This is one of the great ways to overcome your own biases. Just force yourself to think about the opposite, the opposite point of view, and, and really think about it. You know, it's like th- try, try to justify it in your own mind. And that's, that's a very, very effective thing. Um, Put that in a context. As, Let's use a, uh, give us an example of that, like it's boring, because that's a good, um, yeah, like, like, that's a good exercise. Yeah, let's say you know you, you're you're talking about you know uh, the, the gun issue. You know you 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 have a very strong opinion that you know we should be doing X, Y, and Z about this. Uh, then you you force yourself to think, okay, what would be the opposite point of view of that? If someone were on the totally on the other side of that, how would they feel about that issue, and what would be their rationale for doing it? So it's simply shifting, getting yourself to shift perspectives. That's what you're trying to do with questioning as much as possible. You're trying to shift from your own perspective to a different perspective. And it's the same thing if you're making a decision about, you know, um, should I take this job? Should I not take this job? You know, you're trying to shift. You ask yourself questions like, what would, um, what would my best friend do in this situation? Or what would someone who's different from me uh, decide in this situation? You're trying to shift and see a situation from a perspective that's outside of your own. There's an interesting trick you can do, by the way, when you're, um, when you're trying to make a decision about something and you can't decide. Uh, one of the things you can do is ask yourself, if my best friend had to make this decision, what would I advise him or her to do? And think about the advice you'd give your best friend and then think about whether that makes sense for you. Also, it probably does. Because the interesting thing is we often give better advice to our friends than we give to ourselves. So there's tricks like that that you can do with questioning that are all designed to, they're really all designed to kind of shift um, the way you think about an issue uh, and the way you make decisions and, 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 and so forth. Because one of the things we've found in the research or that others have found in the research is that um, when we're looking at the world, when we're making judgments, when we're making decisions, we're doing it from a very narrow uh, field of vision, a very small field of vision. And what we want to do is open up that field of vision, take in more information, see things from more viewpoints, and that's what you can try to do with questioning. Just ask yourself to do that. I mean, that's really important. I have an, just personally as an example, I like to try and do that. Uh, look at, uh, look at, uh, online, look at, uh, perhaps websites that I disagree with or news, you know, listen to other news channels that I don't agree with so that I right. get a, the different perspectives. 
And I have a friend who argues with me. Why would you do that? Why do you want to listen to the other side? Why don't you know they have nothing to say? And we go through this really very often. And I said, because you need to hear what you know. You need to know what your what what all the issues are. You need to have a perspective, as you say on the yeah, whole thing. Yeah, it's, it's but, very important. Yeah. The way to, the way to think of it too is. Um, it's a way to sharpen your critical thinking or a way to exercise your critical thinking because um, if you, if you uh, continue to surround yourself with the same points of view, um, your critical thinking never gets challenged. And, um, and, and there's actually a term that I found interesting when I studied critical thinking. Uh, it's called weak sense critical thinking, uh, which is what a lot of people engage in. And that's when you use your your faculties of critical thinking like, uh, you know, analysis, uh, judgment, uh, all of these great things, but you use them all to defend the existing point of view. So you say, oh, oh I'm, I'm a, I, I think about things. I, I, I you know, I consider uh, lots of evidence. I, I do all this stuff, but you're only doing it to defend the point of view you already have. So that's not really critical thinking. In order to do good critical thinking, you have to constantly subject yourself to differing points, points of view. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It doesn't mean you have to accept them. You have to, you have to expose yourself to them, and you have to actually consider them. You, you can't just dismiss them out of hand. You have to think about them and consider them. And then once you've thought about them and considered them, if you still don't agree with them, great. You know, that means you were on the right track to begin with. Well, it's interesting because if you anyone has ever, which I have been, on a debating team in high school or in college, uh, that's yeah. what you're forced to do. You have to argue both sides of 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 the uh, of the argument. And it's a great it, exercise because it, it is a great forces exercise. You, it forces you to empathize with other points of view because you you know you have to take that you have to temporarily adopt that point of view. That sort of forces empathy, and that's what we need a lot more of in our discussion and our debate these days. We need people to say, you know, one of the questions I, I mention in the uh, relationships section of the book is, you know, if you are talking to people who have a very different point of view from you, you know, one of the things you can ask them is, okay, is there anything in my point of view that you can agree with? Is there anything that you can uh, see any logic in? Uh, if you can ask a person to do that, what you, what you do is you, you get them to temporarily shift over to your point of view and think, think about what might be right in your point of view. And most people will, very few people will say, no, there's absolutely nothing in your, in your argument that I agree with. Oftentimes, much more often, they'll say, well, I do agree with what you're saying about this. And so now you're getting them to start to think more about the other point of view. This is the same kind of thing you use in uh, couples therapy or mar marital therapy, getting yeah. when you have couples. Yeah. So it works in, in most arenas, I guess, when you have two people arguing. Uh, well, therapists have understood for a long yes. time about the power of questioning. So do coaches. Um, coaches rely heavily on questioning. And you know who else? It's, it's interesting, the people who rely on questioning. Hostage negotiators. <laughs> I interviewed a hostage negotiator. It's all about the questions with a hostage negotiator. Um, anyone who's in a crisis situation and has to immediately uh, build a rapport or establish a connection with someone, 
they use questions to do it. So you start to see that the, the, the power that questions have uh, in terms of, you know, inviting someone in, getting their defenses down a little bit, and allowing them to maybe trust you a little bit. How did you become a questionologist? Oh, I just did it by, it started because I was a journalist. And, um, you know, so when you're a journalist, the, a question is, is one of the tools of your trade. It might be the most important tool of your trade. Uh, you use questions every day. Um, but what was interesting was, you know, I noticed, um, and I don't, I don't know if you've noticed this as, as, a, as an interviewer and a journalist yourself, but, um, but I noticed that uh, even though journalists rely so heavily on questioning, there, was, there wasn't that much um, uh, literature, or when I went to journalism school, there were, there were no courses on how to ask better questions. It was almost just like assumed that, oh, you'll figure that out. <laughs> you know, you'll figure out how to ask better questions. So, um, so I thought there was a real uh, gap out there in terms of uh, appreciating how important questioning was, not only for journalists, but for everyone. Um, and then I also thought there, there wasn't enough discussion about, you know, um, how, do you, how, how do you get better at asking questions or why is, why is it so important to do it and, and what can it achieve if you get better at asking questions? So I just felt like there was a real gap there and I started to really focus more and more on that. I started to study um, people that I thought were really good questioners and look at you know, how they use this tool um, and then I just got deeper and deeper into it. I discovered all kinds of interesting things like about children and questioning. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a fascinating field. You, you see that children have this amazing questioning gift when they're four or five, and then it just declines as they go through school. Uh, they ask less and less questions. So I, I just think it's a fascinating subject that is, is really underappreciated. Well, I think with children, you, you hear the people say to, oftentimes to kids as they're asking questions, even parents and teachers will say, why are you asking so many questions? Just Yeah, exactly. And, and, and of, of course, they should be saying just the opposite. I mean, and I know it's, you know, people get impatient because they get bombarded with so many questions from kids. But really, uh, what I would say to parents is just try to encourage that because the rest of the world is going to be discouraging it. So your role as a parent should be to encourage that curiosity, encourage that questioning um, as much as you can. And, uh, and it doesn't mean, by the way, when you're a parent and your kids are asking a lot of questions, it doesn't mean you have to have the answers. You don't have to have the answers. People have that mistaken idea that, oh, well, I don't, I don't know all the, the answers to all these questions. You don't have to be the answer machine. You just have to be the person who's saying, you know, hey, that's a really interesting question. Um, I wonder how we could learn more about that. I wonder if we could look it up somewhere. I wonder if there's someone else we could talk to that could help us uh, learn more about that. So just encourage that, encourage that spirit of curiosity. Yeah, and sometimes, of course, kids ask questions in the wrong context. You have to wait. <laughs> it isn't always appropriate, the question that they're asking where they are, but right. you don't want to put, put them off. Yeah, um, well, they're learning. They're, you know, they're experimenting with questions, too, and they're learning what works and what doesn't work. So I think you want to try to help them on that journey. And, uh, and, and the thing is, you know, to, w what you have to keep in mind is 
there will be a lot of things discouraging that questioning in them. For instance, you know, in the, in the classroom sometimes there's no time for questions. We have so much material to cover and we have to cover what's going to be on the test. And so we don't have time for these extraneous questions. So they're going to get discouraged in the classroom. Their, their, their fellow students may, may think it's uncool to ask questions. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of things that are going to be discouraging questioning out there. And I think as a parent, your role should be to be encouraging it. Warren, you mentioned other questionologists, people who ask great questions, and you've obviously you've studied them and uh, learned from them. So who are some of those people? Who do you think, like today, who are the people who are asking really good questions about maybe very toxic issues? Well, I think that, um, you know, I, I tend to be focused on the world of um, uh, business and innovation. So I'm pretty steeped in looking at all of these um, all of these tech innovators, you know, it, it goes back to, say, Steve Jobs at Apple, and he was an amazing questioner. Um, you know, he used to go through, Steve Jobs used to go through Apple and um, through the company, and he would stop in every department, every part of the company. He would look at whatever it was they were doing. Let's say the accounting department was using a certain accounting system, and he would ask, why are we doing it this way? And people would have to be able to explain the rationale behind everything they were doing. And he said that that was one of the most important things he learned about running an organization, um, was just that you have to constantly question everything you're doing so that you don't fall into these mindless habits and routines that really don't make sense. So, um, so I tend to be focused on, uh, today I'm, I look at a lot of the people, the innovators in Silicon Valley, at, at the, the, the people running Netflix and Airbnb, and I look at the way they, they have questioned their own uh, industries and, uh, and, and question, bring questioning into the business world. I tend to be very focused on that. But, I, you know, I also, I, I mean, I, I think in the, in the, in the, the world of, uh, the, the, the world of, of uh, uh, politics, uh, you, find, you find great questioners out there. You find people that are really, um, you know, I actually thought Barack Obama was a great questioner. I mean, I thought, you know, a lot of times when someone is in the position of, uh, of a higher level of, yeah. higher level of politics, they stop asking questions because they get into that mode of just making promises. You know, I'm, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I thought he was unusual in that he would oftentimes step back and, and ask, you know, uh, why are we, you know, you know, he would basically be asking questions like, why are we not getting along better or, or, or why aren't we doing a better job of, as, as a country of, of uh, figuring out how to resolve our differences? I mean, he would really, um, I thought, at times really question uh, and, and put big questions out there for all of us to consider. Um, and I like that. I, I think leaders need to do more of that. I think leaders need to challenge us with questions. Um, there was a the great uh, uh, statement that uh, John Kennedy made years ago, uh, which was actually not a question because it didn't have a question mark on the end of it, but it was, it was based on questioning, and it was the idea about ask Ask not what, uh, what your country can do for you, but, but ask what you can do for your country. And I think that, you know, leaders need to put these kinds of big questions out there for us. You know, I would love to see our leaders asking us uh, what I refer to as how might we questions. That's questions that start with the three words, how might we. A very powerful form of questioning. 
And I think I would love to see leaders asking us, you know, how might we as a society do a better job at this? Or how might we figure out how to tackle this issue um, that we're that is vexing us today. I think Warren, but you leaders, mentioned Barack Obama yeah. and John yeah. Kennedy, and I, to- I would totally agree with you. So, but they're no longer the president, or right. they're no longer in politics. Uh, right. So today, so who's doing that now? Are there any senators? Are there any? Uh, <laughs> you know, um, I wish there. I wish I could name someone. I'm. I'm not. I'm having trouble. I'm having trouble thinking right now of. Of politicians who are who are who are presenting themselves that way, um, uh, I think that right now we have a, it, it's a time of of people really taking um, hard stands against one another and um, and making very strong statements across the aisle to each other. So I would love to see a little more questioning enter into this um, this environment we're in right now. I would love to see. Um, people actually um, consider why there is such a strong feeling on the other side. And, you know, what should we be doing to address those strong feelings that we disagree with? Because we can't just argue people out of their points of view. You know, that doesn't work. I mean, we, we, we know that doesn't work, that, you, you know, you can go to someone with a different point of view and you can have a a hundred facts on your side and you can try to batter them with the facts, but it doesn't work. Um, what we really need to do if we're going to create more um, uh, unity is uh, begin to have a dialogue where you try to understand each other. Each side tries to get a better understanding of the other. That's only going to happen if we're asking questions and if we're really, truly interested in the, in the perspective of the other side. Well, if you could give me any specific name, since we are having the midterm elections, I would vote for that person or persons if there were people out there that you sort of had a feel for beginning to do this or able to, to ask Well, the questions. only thing I would yeah. say, and I, you know, at, at the risk of getting deep into, into policy, into Well, we only have three minutes, we have three minutes well, left, so we can't get in. taking sides, what, what yeah. I would say is, one thing, we probably need to uh, a shift in the government towards Democrats because you can't even have questioning if one side is dominating uh, the discussion. And uh, that's kind of what we've had uh, recently. We've had one side with, with the t- complete power and basically saying, you know, well, we're not, we don't care that much what the other side says because we're in power. So I think one of the ways you start the questioning process going is to make sure there's a sharing of power. And that's one of the issues we're dealing with in this upcoming election is, is shifting that balance a little bit. So in a general sense, I would say that, that you know, our, our government is a divided government for a good reason. We, we want to have two sides and we want to have, uh, you know, we want to have both sides uh, with some influence. Great. Uh, well, great questions, uh, yeah. and great having you on the show today. We have like literally one minute left, so just give because I I want to mention the book again, book of pa- of beautiful questions, the powerful questions that will help you decide, create, connect, and lead. And we've been talking to the author Warren Berger. Warren, just give us a website we can go to for more information about the book. And yeah, about um, you. if you're interested in questioning, uh, this is not just about the book. There's all kinds of articles and things on questioning. If, if you're interested in this as a subject, um, there's a site called amorebeautifulquestion.com. 
So just put those words, uh, those four words squeezed together, a more beautiful question, uh, dot com, and, uh, and you'll find all kinds of stuff on there about, uh, you know, uh, t- you can take a quiz on what kind of questioner you are, and you can, there's even a list of question songs. I, I collect songs that have uh, questions for the title, so if anyone knows any, they can add them to the list. But you'll have fun with that site. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Catherine. Appreciate it. Yeah. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Matthew Horace, law enforcement and security expert and author of The Black and the Blue. A Cop Reveals the Crimes, Racism, and Injustice in America's Law Enforcement. Matthew Horace has spent 28 years working in law enforcement at the federal, state, and local level. But even he is not immune to the dangers of being a black man in America. While working undercover, he found himself with a gun pointed at his head, a breath away from being shot by a white officer who thought because he was black, he must be the suspect. Using gut-wrenching reports, on-the-ground research, and personal accounts garnered from interviews with over 100 police and government officials around the country, Horace presents an insider's examination of police tactics. He's featured on MSNBC, CBS, NBC, BBC, CNN, and is a contributor to the Wall Street Journal Crisis of the Week column. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on today. 
Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. I just want to read a quote from our representative, John Lewis, and he says, this is a must read for anyone who wants to understand the intersection of race and police brutality in America. Telling this story demonstrates nothing but raw courage for a black police officer who wants the truth to prevail. That kind of says it all about your book. Well, it it's, doesn't say it all, but it's a, a good introduction. So how well, do you do? Yeah, go ahead. Well, it certainly is. You know, I was very honored uh, when we opened up the tour in Atlanta, Congressman Lewis introduced me at the at Barnes and Noble down there, and he talked about that very statement. And you know, I take it very seriously. And the more we travel around the country and talk about this issue, uh, the more the truth has to be told. So I'm glad uh, we have the opportunity to chat and have some time today. You've been doing this for a long time, as I said, 28 years. That's a long time in law enforcement. So, what was the point? I said, was it when the gun was pointed at your head and you were in danger of being shot that this was a defining moment for you, to, uh, like an aha moment? Now, to to do something, to say something, uh, or, or I would assume that this would this incident would have had a huge impact on you. Well, you know what? It really did. It wasn't the only defining moment. There were others in the, in the black and the blue. We talk about some of those incidences when you're out with people and people use racial slurs and those sort of things. And that's very evident. You know, that's very visceral. It's in your face. But then the idea of doing undercover, which is always dangerous anyway, right? Uh, when, we, when we come on the job, we're counseled by others and, and, and we're told you have to be very careful because of the dynamics of people and implicit biases and things. You don't want to end up in a situation where you get hurt or killed because someone mistakes you for a bad guy. So then when I'm, when I'm there in this situation, it's really surreal because it's like life imitating art. It's happening to me. All these bad stories that I've heard through the years, including uh, those of uh, Omar Edwards in New York, uh, who we talk about in the book, who was killed chasing a, uh, a suspect who was breaking into his own car. He was a NYPD officer. And it wasn't until the officers um, shot him and tried to administer first aid that they learned that he was, in fact, a police officer. So, yes, it was a very surreal moment for me. But if I didn't know it before then, I knew it at that moment that I was black and blue. And in America, this is a dangerous game sometimes. And the other thing, you know, you, you also say that you you talk about our archaic system, um, which is built on, I think I'm quoting you, built on toxic brotherhood. What does that mean? This is how all, a lot of this behavior has come about. Right. Well, that, that refers to this code that sometimes we um, support behind the line that says, number one, we don't tell on our, our law enforcement colleagues uh, that we don't get in the way of their progress, and no matter what, we stick together. And we use ver some very real examples of that in the book, uh, most notably Chicago and the case that just um, concluded with Laquan McDonald and Officer Van Dyke. You had a situation where an officer fired, I don't know, 15 rounds, and the four or five other officers that were there uh, supported the story. And, you know, the one officer goes to jail and gets indicted and gets convicted, and the other ones get disciplined and, I think, in a couple cases, fired. But there's this idea that we have to walk down the same line. And, you know, many uh, police leaders in the United States are trying to overcome this and change that tide in departments and convince officers that, look, if it's not right, then say it's not right. If it's wrong, then call it wrong. So, in other words, you have to engage the, the officers in the system, is what you're saying, and they have to be honest with themselves and with every and with other people, and not hide behind. I mean, are they hiding behind their own racism, or or exactly where does it come from? This behavior. Well, well there's several things. There's this idea that if I if I break ranks and and I do something that goes against my brothers, then number one, I may not get back up. I may not get support and you know, the very people I depend on to save my life day in and day out 
might not be there when I need it. So that, so there's that. And then there's the other thing that once you tell on people, you know, you become like a snitch and people don't want to work with you. And then, and then the idea is that we are all, we're in a job that we are the only ones that understand what happens to us. So therefore, it creates this us and them. It's in, you know, and in the book, we ask the question, if it's us and them, then who's them? You know, is them criminals? Is them minority communities? Who is them? So, you know, there, there's a lot of dynamics going on, and, and it is very archaic. And progressive police leaders have learned how to overcome this and communicate with their troops, uh, set clear uh, code of conduct where officers understand that they must tell the truth when things are not right or don't seem right. And also, even if it's your friend, even if it's your partner, even if it's your trainer, if something happens that's inconsistent with the conduct of the department, you must come forward and, and tell the truth. You need the dialogue. You have to be, is, is, uh, that's what I hear you saying. I mean, you need this dialogue, um, and you need it a constant dialogue back and forth. Um, mm-hmm. What else? I mean, uh, you know, it, it seems to me that, you know, every other, not obviously not every other week, but so often we keep seeing these this behavior repeated over and over again. I mean, are we, are, are things changing or are things changing in different cities or different police departments are doing it right and maybe others aren't doing it so right? Right. Well, you know, you have, you have several things going on. Many of the departments have hired chiefs and administrators who want to turn this ship. You know, sometimes it takes a year or more. It could take five years to change the culture. Uh, we say very often, that culture each strategy for lunch. So in these departments where there's a culture that says, don't tell on each other, um, whatever happens here stays here, it takes a long time to turn it around. But there are examples. New Orleans is a classic example. Uh, Chief Michael Harrison and what he's been able to do with the New Orleans Police Department that back in the mid-90s and late-90s was really, really at, at rock bottom. And now they've turned the corner through uh, constant communication, uh, better training, uh, better hiring, uh, more advanced recruiting, and then getting that message down to people that accountability reigns supreme here in this department. And New Orleans is not the only department that does that. There are many others. And throughout the book, we talk we talk to a number of chiefs, like Chief Chris Mangus in uh, Tucson, Arizona, uh, who is doing things very progressively down there. And listen, there, there are as many uh, great chiefs and great administrators out here as there are archaic policies. But we have to keep at this um, tone and tenor. We have to call it when we see it. We have to write it when we see it, and we have to keep having this dialogue, in, in my opinion. And what about, it would seem to me there may be, is, I guess I should ask, obviously I'm asking you the question, is there a difference like in ages, like you get these new young officers as opposed to maybe some of these uh, men and women who have been in the field for you know, 20 or 30 years, are their attitudes different, Have is in the, let's say, in a positive way? Um, and, yeah. Well, they are, because even in policing, as you know, in the workforce, we're dealing with like five different generations of people. So now people are coming up in a different generation. They have different expectations as it relates to diversity, implicit bias, and culture. And they come into these environments sometimes. And what we hope is that they sort of are a part of the change that we all want to see. And, and I'll give you an example. Um, when I came on the police department in 1985, uh, the person who was training me as what we call a field training officer, he had been on the department for almost 30 years. So that places him back in the 50s, and at that time, they did not have black police officers in that department or women and others. So, you know, sometimes those old habits and those ingrained biases are very hard to break. So to your point, um, with a new generation of police officers, new commitment, new training, new chiefs, we hope that we can turn this corner at some point, and we hope that the black and the blue is a part of that and creating the dialogue and keeping the narrative going.
So what's been the response to your book? <laughs> well, uh, from people who read it, <laughs> from people who've actually read the book, the response has been amazing. And, you know, one of the things I, I, I keep, every night when I go to bed, I think about, everyone has said this, the book touches everyone who reads it. So whether you're white or black or a police officer, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a homemaker, no matter who reads this book, they've said the book touches everyone. The challenge is that within our culture, sometimes we don't like being called out. So even the title sort of suggests that, you know, we're going down a negative path. But as you know, and as uh, most of the uh, reviewers have pointed out, the book is not anti-cop. The book is actually supportive of police. But we don't mind saying that there are things we can do better to make our world a better place. So overwhelmingly, the response to the book has been amazing. The reviews have been amazing. Um, everyone who reads it and we speak to, they go, man, that was me. I feel like you were writing about me. You know, I was the person who had an implicit bias, or I was the person who called the police because I was suspicious about someone, or I was the black police officer who was with my colleagues when this happened, or I was the white police officer, and I never understood why people felt this way. So um, as long as these reviews keep coming in and people keep chatting, I think we've done a great thing, and, and I hope that the book continues to spread. Yeah, and what about examples of good example? I mean, because you interviewed so many people, so many, uh, what, over, I mean, I forgot what the numbers were, 100, I guess, interviews with over 100 sure. police and government officials. That's a lot of people. So everybody, I'm sure, had similar but also very different, unique stories to tell. Any good stories, any stories where people, you know, uh, gave as examples of when it really works, when you're really working together, black and white police officers, oh, the whole thing? Yeah. Let's talk about absolutely. those. Absolutely. Well, you know, one, one story that comes to mind uh, for me it's Chris, uh, Chief Chris Mangus out in Tucson, Arizona. You know, he, he was the first openly gay police chief in, in, a, in a culture that can be very, very sort of um, very focused. You know, and he came out of the closet as a gay chief, and he's a white chief. He's a white male. And he, he talked about the Black Lives Matter protests and, you know, when all of that was going on a couple of years ago. And he says, you know, I, I had to do something different because what we were doing wasn't working. So he said the first thing we did was, for the precinct officers, we gave out their cell phones to community members so that people could call them direct. Well, that was sort of different. You know, they're, they're police cell phones. They're managed by the government, so therefore you can do what you want. The second thing he did was when they had the greatest and largest protests in his city, he bought pizza and water for people that were on the protest route. And he had his officers get engaged with the public. And he said he learned in, throughout that process that everyone really wants the same thing. And whenever you have protests, there, there's this thing that says it's us versus them or them versus us. But the more you talk to people, you find that everyone wants the same thing. Uh, people want good police services. They want to feel protected and served. Police officers want to feel like they're uh, respected. They want to feel supported. And everybody at the end of the day wants the same thing. But sometimes within the flurry and the whitewater, we get lost and the messages get mixed, and then things become really chaotic, and we've seen that over and over and over again. So what we want people to do is listen more. We want people to pay attention. We want people to listen to policing and listen to police departments and police officers. But conversely, we want police departments and police officers to listen to what the public is saying. Listen to the beat of your community. Get to know your community so when things go bad, you have a relationship first instead of trying to develop a relationship during the chaos. Yeah, I think that's well said. Understand your community. I always use the word context, but you have to know the context in which you're working, in which you're, 
you know, I think that obviously that that's key. Some, and as you mentioned earlier, some cities do it better than others. Do you think that maybe the police officer in Tucson, because he was he was white, but he was gay, so he also understood a lot of the kind of institutionalized kinds of uh, negative attitudes that that people have or uh, towards people of color or people who are gay or a different religion and, and so he was perhaps more sensitive I would assume or I'm making that assumption well well actually he says it point blank to us in the book he says you know yeah. I was used to the, I was used to the sting of discrimination so because I'm used to it I always bring that context to the conversation and you know it's interesting um, back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, a lot of the police organizations were going through this recruitment effort to try to ensure that their organizations look like the communities in which they serve. And for as many people that don't understand why that's important, it's important for that very reason, because when we're having a discussion about something, our experiences and our contexts enable, enables us oftentimes to have a different sense of compassion and empathy for people. And hopefully you do it in a way that doesn't compromise your safety when you're on the streets, but it requires more listening. And in many cases, you know, police departments hire officers that have had no access to the communities that they serve. And then you expect them to be fair and open-minded when you're dealing with people on the worst days of their lives. And, you know, in the book, we also talk about the fact that police officers are put in these positions routinely, day in and day out, where sometimes we're really not qualified to deal with the situations. And mental health is a clear example. Uh, we're not mental health practitioners. But who do you call when someone appears to be mentally ill and creating a threat or a hazard? You call the police. And, and, and many times, and as we point out in the book, uh, a, you know, a good percentage of people that are shot and killed by police have mental health issues. So, you know, it's, it's really an unfortunate intersection of events when we're asking police to deal with all the problems of society, and many of which were unqualified or untrained to do. Well, it's interesting you should mention that. I used to be involved in the training, but this was the state police, New York State, and they had a specific training program, which uh, as a uh, social worker and an actress, they had training programs for training the state police uh, to deal with patients who were mentally ill, patients who were bipolar, uh, making the distinction, as you say, between someone who's really mentally ill and someone who may be a criminal, or may, it really isn't, and how to deal with those situations. We should go through a whole series of scenarios, uh, which was very, very, I think, I, I think the program's still going on, but those kinds of programs, I would assume, would be very helpful. Right. Well, as you know, a lot of departments have the funding and the resources and the wherewithal to be progressive in the way I approach these things, but you know, when you think about humanity, if, if, we, if we just bring it down to a humane level, think about what happens when someone's in their home or their apartment in New York or any other city in America, and they call the police because their loved one is not taking their medication and presenting a threat. And then think of what happens when the police come, and because of, because of very real threats or perceived threats, then this person ends up dead. And, you know, the call went out for help, and what they got was a dead relative. So these are things that, you know, we're not blaming police. We're just saying that we're the ones who are called to deal with it, and we deal with it based on our training, and then we're the ones that are ostracized by the same community who calls us. So it's a very untenable situation at times. Isn't it important for people, police officers, to understand personally where they're coming from and to understand their own prejudices and and to be aware of who they are and, as you say, where they come from. And because it's not just a job. I mean, this is a job, like you say, you're dealing with all kinds of people from every 
black, white, you know, women, you can go the whole gamut of different kinds of people and, and you have to be able to, I think really on a personal level, understand your own prejudices if you're going to, to, to do that or to become, uh, you know, a, an officer. Right. Well, you know, I've been, I've been through and I've been uh, taken through and I've offered uh, training classes on implicit bias. And what you described, so there are several le- levels. There is that prejudice level, like that open hostility towards people that don't look like you, right? But then there's those implicit biases for people that don't even, people that don't even uh, exasperate those hard prejudices. There are those implicit biases that we all have that come from our upbringing, our context, our experiences. And those can be equally as detrimental to relationship building, and they have disastrous outcomes in the street. And I'll, g- I'll give you an example. Of, uh, in, in the book, I talk about a call that I went on as a police officer where I go to a domestic call, and the, um, the complainant is a man. And he says he wants, he wants his uh, partner out of the apartment. And myself and my partner, who was a woman, show up to the call, and we walk upstairs to the apartment assuming that the person we're going to be escorting downstairs is a woman. But we get up to the call and it actually is a man <laughs> and, a very, and a very large man. So, you know, ding, number one, our implicit bias drove us one direction when we were actually going another. Then we get up to the apartment and this individual is like 6'8 and over 300 pounds. So he's very large. He's African-American. Is that a reason for us to think that he's going to be any more dangerous than anyone else? Well, perhaps, maybe, in some people's minds, possibly. But he wasn't. And as it turned out, after some discussion and after some communication, we were able to get the individual downstairs without incident. But, you know, he, again, he was very big. He was large. He had assaulted his uh, roommate. Uh, he was somewhat noncompliant early on. But because we were able to have some compassion and empathy and because we were able to communicate, right, and, 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 and work this thing forward, no one got, got injured. But in some cases... Just think of what happens if you if the person walks upstairs and they're scared because the person is big or because they have a misperception because the person's African-American or because the person raises their voice and now you feel like you're in a threat. Um, you know, these things happen, again, with disastrous consequences. So it requires a little bit more forethought. It requires more listening, more, more watching, and more consideration, empathy, and compassion. Well, it, that was your example, a personal example. Are there any others? I mean, that that's a great example, by the way, but uh, where you're confronted with those kinds of things. Your expectations, it has to do with expectations too, right? I mean, you, you ex- um, are totally different than what you thought when you get into a situation, and so yeah. you know, then, yeah. And we bring these things, we, and it's not just police officers, it's, it's everyone, as you know. We bring these expectations to our daily interactions with people, and some of the trainings I've been in have been great because what they do is they force you to deal with your own implicit biases, and if you can do that, then perhaps you can put those 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 senses, those feelings into check when you're dealing with people in the public. But when you get out on a corner, when you're in a patrol car and you jump out of your patrol car and you start yelling at people without saying "Good morning, my name is" or "Good afternoon, my name is," this is what we're looking to do. It just sends things a whole whole different direction, and it causes you to, it causes people to ask the question. Why was I speaking to these people this way? And would I be speaking to them that way if I were in another neighborhood? And, and that lends to this whole idea that throughout the United States and study after study, in certain neighborhoods, people say they feel like their police are there to protect and serve. And in others, they never feel like they're protected and served. 
social workers have that kind of when you get your MSW or your master's in social work, all of those things that you're describing are requirements because you're dealing with all different kinds of people, obviously in a different kind of setting than a police officer is, uh, which is more of life and death situations often. But um, it's it's that kind of training, I think, that anyone who deals with the public should have. Um, right. Yeah. Well, you well you would think you would think so. Um, and again, the police departments that do it do a great job of it. But you know, again, we never like to be told that what we're doing is not working. But clearly, over the last uh, several years, with all the different incidents and all the different arrests and convictions and indictments and protests, we know that there has to be a better way. And we just hope that the black and the blue is a part of that better way, and that people keep responding, and we're going to keep talking, and we're not going to stop. Yeah. Well, we need more people like you, obviously, writing these kinds of books, giving lectures, uh, I assume going across the country, obviously. Uh, so we only have a couple minutes left. So where can we find um, out more information about the book website, okay. but also other things right. that are happening maybe that we should we can tune into? Sure. Well, my website, www.matthewhorst.com, we'll be posting up um, cities where we'll be going for events, certainly through Amazon. Uh, the book is available through Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. And um, uh, every time we do an event, it, it posts to social media. And uh, I can also be reached through my website uh, uh, and through Hachette Publishing in New York for speaking engagements as well. So I appreciate um, the time and energy and, and, and look forward to continuing to talk about this and, and raise awareness. Great. Matthew Horace, thanks so much. Uh, very important book, The Black and the Blue, A Cop Reveals the Crimes, Racisms, Racism and Injustice in America's Law Enforcement. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Catherine. Have a wonderful day. Yep. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program.